Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. This week, our co-host is Lena Tamsito. She is an assistant professor in psychiatry at McMaster University. And she was our very first postdoc. And I mention that now because our deadline for the next postdoc applications is the middle of March. So this is probably the last podcast where people have the chance to be reminded to scramble to do your application. It's a very simple application. Uh, you can find all the information out on the CDSN website. I think anyone who is interested in continuing doing, you know, research, a research program of their own, I highly recommend that you put your name in again. And I go back to this time and again, is that this is not an area that I would see myself uh, doing a postdoc in, but I thought I'd give it a shot and it worked out. It's worked out for me a million times over. So I'd really encourage anyone who has any interest in security, defense, you know, whether it's local or international, anything that's aligned with, you know, public safety personnel or military veteran, anything like that to, you know, put their application in because uh, the, the CDSN is a really open network and I can't say enough about that opportunity. Well, so, we're obviously the better off for, for <laughs> having you involved in our, all of our shenanigans, including becoming one of our co-hosts of this very podcast. So you asked me how I'm doing. I spent reading week, not reading, but skiing with my family. Lovely. Uh, and uh, the greater Banff region. Uh, but enough of that. We it's A lot of stuff has been going on uh, for the past few weeks. Yes. And some of it is retrospective. Some of it is prospective. So the Rulo report came out saying that Justin Trudeau was warranted in using the Emergency Act to shut down the, the occupation of Ottawa. Given that you have hung out with police officers, you happen to be married uh-huh. to a police officer, if I may reveal uh-huh. that. I'm curious as to your take on the whole the whole thing before we get into pieces of it. I mean, me personally, I've been following this fairly closely just out of just sheer interest, you know, watching protests happen, how the city of Ottawa was shut down, the fallout from that. It was a, a spectacle. I mean, the entire thing was a spectacle. So it was nice to have some closure. And I think, you know, it is legislated that this invest, this inquiry happened. But I, I personally think it was an answer whether or not I, you know, support it or not. I think it was nice to have, you know, like a, a period to the end of this. I don't know if it's a, a finite period because there seems to be some ongoing discussion as to whether or not, you know, there's the recommendations that need to be followed up on, whether or not, you know, different parties agree or disagree with what the findings were, but at least this gives some closure to it. I mean, the prime minister was, I guess, exonerated 
for the decisions made, you know, in terms of policing. It, I mean, we definitely saw that there was a failure of policing. Uh, it was interesting watching the live events come on the news. Um, and it it really hit close to home for us as a policing family, watching how chaotic and disorganized it was. It was really reminiscent of the G20 that had happened a number of years ago, where similar chaos had ensued in terms of communication within policing. Uh, my husband was actually part of that nonsense in Toronto. And so it was particularly personal to to us watching that. So it was nice to get some validation in terms of how policing was mismanaged during this event. And so what is your take on how the policing was managed during this event? I think it was chaotic. I think not having the Ontario government at the table contributed to that chaos. There was miscommunication. I think there was a lot of assumptions made that, you know, this service was going to be responsible for it or that service was responsible for it. I think there there wasn't enough resources. I think there was a comment about how the Ontario government at one point had said we have provided X number of hours of support when in actuality it was X number of hours for support over the course. So there's a lot of miscommunication in terms of how well the Ontario government had supported it. So it was nice to get a single document to sort through all the information, as well as compare it to actually what had happened to be able to, to come up with the conclusion. And hopefully it becomes a, a learning opportunity for them to build in mechanisms to how to better handle something like this in the future. And let's hope that it doesn't happen again. Well, to be fair, before I get to being critical, we have seen a variety of convoy-esque recurrences and the police yes. have been much more willing to be prepared at, at the top of it. And so we haven't even last week, we had sort of the anniversary of, of the event, and it didn't make a big stink in town. We didn't have a huge problems or as much fear about that happening. And mm -hmm. so part of that might be successful policing. Part of that might be that the folks on the other side of this are either burnt out or uh, a little bit uh, you know, in conflict with each other or whatever, but they may not be quite as mobilized or engaged as they were a year ago. So I think there's that. Sorry, Steve, was there any indication in within Ottawa for the the citizens of Ottawa, that policing had shifted this time around, that there were efforts made? Was there anything communicated to the community? I think their communications were mostly in what they were doing. I'm sure they sent out much information, but I think the public in Ottawa is fairly skeptical about what the Ottawa police uh, issue these days, given what happened last year. I think it's mm -hmm. going to take a long time for the police to earn back the trust of, of the people in the city, given how the report does a good job of basically showing how badly the police served the people of the city. So I, I think it's going to take a long time for there to be trust to be established. And I am a little skeptical because while the report did a good job of showing that the old police chief might have been scapegoated, I wonder mm -hmm. how much structural changes to take place. Ottawa ultimately elected a new mayor who was a very much a status quo mayor. Uh, they put in a new police chief who was very much a status quo police chief. So it's not like the people who live in the city were able to push forward their preferences and get the change that they wanted. Instead, we got we've got people sort of who are more same. or less yes, more of the same people who had been in power before. That the new mayor has been picking people for various positions who are actually in the old administration. So it's yeah. hard to say that there's a whole lot that's being changed now or, or that to make a, a big difference. So I think from the standpoint of systemic change about the the policing, I, I worry about it. But on the other hand, it does seem to be the case that 
at least when it comes to these incidences, they're doing a bit of a better job of anticipating and preparing. And, you know, eventually we're going we're, we're to start having conversations about, well, they really jumped at nothing or, well, they're overprepared, but I'd rather yeah. have us invest in prevention and not have to spend a month or two trying yeah. to take people out of the city. And what's your take overall on the, the report that came out? I think that it did a good job of laying blame at the at the feet of Doug Ford mm. and potentially Jason Kenny as well, that this was really a provincial problem. And I think the report did a good job of showing that the, I mean, it didn't say it in so many words, but the emergency was not that the provinces couldn't handle it. It's that the provinces wouldn't handle it. They weren't the at Fed, the table. The feds had to act because the other actors, particularly the conservatives running Ontario and running Alberta and maybe also Manitoba, had incentives to not do anything, both because that would mm-hmm. not alienate people in the, their part of their constituency, but also make it Trudeau's problem. Yeah. And that was something we've seen in the United States where Republicans have constantly tried to make things Obama's problem or, or Biden's problem. And that means perpetuating things that should be handled. And so- this protest, this occupation would have been much shorter had Doug Ford done his job, but he didn't. And so Rulo essentially called him out for that. And I thought that was good. I was curious as to your take on the asset freezing side of things, because that gets to the sort of the softer side of security. Instead of talking about, you know, the policing side of things, it's about the money mm-hmm. side. And so I'm curious as to, as to your take on on the report's view on asset freezing, because that was very controversial. It is. I didn't realize it had such trickle down effect because one of the things that I learned about is that, you know, by freezing people's assets, they couldn't, you know, I mean, other than, you know, paying for this convoy occupation to continue, it also affected, you know, things like child support and the way families are running their lives. So I think I, you know, one suggestion that has come out this sort of the post report release discussion is around, you know, having a mechanism to you know, allow certain access to funds given certain circumstances and stuff. But I really think that at the time, the government had to do what they had knowing what they knew. So, I mean, now there are lessons learned that, oh, you know, like with the assets being frozen, there's, there were impacts on, on families and children. So, you know, what can we do about that? And I think these sort of subtler pieces of the effects of the Emergencies Act we're now learning learning about. Yeah, I I thought it was interesting that again the report pretty much said, well, this is you know a hammer, but given it was a little bit more precise than other kinds of solutions, that yes, it did have some side effects, mm-hmm. but overall it was fair to use this. But that, that there should have been more in the back end of getting people off of these lists and and reducing the cost to them. There's a phrase that's popular on the internet that that is. Um, Blank around and find out. Mm. And so I think one thing that Asset Freezing did was it basically told people that if you screw around, then you'll find out that there are real costs. And so I think I think that made sense to do. Again, an extremist. You don't want to make every protester have to worry about their financial livelihood. Yeah. But you know, going beyond what they did and, and basically presenting a threat to the city of Ottawa means that there's some cost to that. But there should have been also ways to reduce the longer term costs so that way people are punished for the act, but not punished for life or you know, doing what they were doing. I, well, I, have I to mean, be... you know, Ontario had showed up at the table. <laughs> I mean, I would speculate that things wouldn't have gotten right. I think that's sort of the the overall message here is that, you know, if we had the, everyone at the table doing what they're supposed to be doing, it wouldn't have come to this. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. So a lot of this goes back to, again, Doug Ford, Jason Kenney and 
I think it was Scott Moe, playing politics with this in a way that made this go longer. And when it goes longer, then you have to respond to it. Then the costs to those who are involved get, get to be higher. So as far as I know, there hasn't been a response to the report from Doug Ford or his office, correct? I haven't seen one, but again, I was skiing, so I can't say for certain that oh. there wasn't one. <laughs> but I, I do think that he he's hiding from the report as much as he hid from the actual event. Yes, it I mean, would be and, nice to see someone push that a little more to get a response. Well, and the thing is, it worked for him, right? He got reelected, so why should he I know. change his behavior? I mean, it drives me crazy, but he got reelected. Mm-hmm. I, you know, but then again, you know, that uh, an election depends on having decent opponents, and the, the other opponents weren't that great. But I really thought that he would pay some kind of a price for this because he completely alienated Ottawa. But a lot of people don't vote. You know, a lot of people in Ontario aren't in Ottawa, and the people in the suburbs of Ottawa may, may not have cared about it. I mean, pa- Pierre Polyev lives near me, and his writings near me, I should say. And I'm sure those folks were like, "Hey, it doesn't really matter to us. We're not living in downtown Ottawa. Why should we care?" Right. So I do think one of the things that we have to think about is sort of the Ottawa bubble versus everything else, which is the people inside the city faced a, a different situation than everybody else. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that clearly was not, you know, enough of the electorate to make a difference. But I do think that Doug Ford will look at this and go, oh, it was a success story. Sure, he got uh, ripped apart in a review, but he got reelected. And that's what yeah. he cares about. Yes, at the end of the day. Yeah. So there are a couple other elements I wanted to talk to you before we move on. One is, the report released a lot of information about how much of this was involved Americans, that more mm-hmm. money came from the United States. When you saw that, what was the reaction to that? Do you think we should, you know, how would we change our banking or whatever to limit the I, ability for outsiders to interfere in our country? So, I mean, you heard about this. I mean, I heard about the potential for this during the occupation, but to have it ex- like clearly laid out that this is happening, I don't know. I think it this is sort of event was an extension of unfortunately what we're seeing is happening quite a bit south of the border so this is just contributes to you know the agenda the right-wing agenda of mandates and government overreaching and and quote-unquote freedoms and all this kind of stuff i mean how would we change the banks i don't know i mean i'm definitely not an expert in that but it's definitely scary to think that and we'll be talking about you know this later on but just how other countries are now encroaching on the sovereignty and decisions making in other nations, which is a, outside of my scope. But again, it's it's a bit concerning. It is concerning because in this 21st century, money flows across borders pretty easily through, you know, GoFundMe and things of that nature. Absolutely. And information travels across. So both of them, what's going on in Canada these days is heavily affected by what's going on in the United States with various actions in the United States tr- using information misinformation, disinformation Mm -hmm. to shape outcomes and using the ability for money to travel across borders, it means that when there's another kind, when when things are going wrong in the United States or things are going in a particular direction in the United States, it it will affect Canada. And so we see a lot of this stuff going on. One thing that happened this week, for instance, is you had this extremist from Germany appear in Canada. And then you had the conservatives who met with her say, well, we didn't know. Oh, I know. (laughs) And what that reminds me of is sort of the what I call implausible deniability, which is is something that the far right has done in the United States and happened in Europe, where they deny something that is clearly true. Mm -hmm. But their followers know that they're just play acting. And since they don't have a sense of shame, they they just don't really bear a lot of costs for this. And so when you see now, you know, these various actors saying, oh, well, we didn't know that she was an extremist or I didn't meet with her or whatever. And it's pretty clear that 
they knew exactly what was going on and they were signaling to their supporters or some of their supporters that they said yeah. you know, that, that they endorse this this point of view they're playing a game that is more than cynical it's it's, it's not even devious it's it's just very destructive to have people who are saying who are basically play acting and saying they don't really care about and they don't really have a sense of shame. I one of the things that I learned in the past five or six years watching the United States is that democracy works a lot by shame, that people stay within the rules, stay and behave decently because they don't want to they might be hypocrites, but they don't want to be called out for being hip, hypocrite. They don't want to be shamed for doing things that are contrary to the norms. And when you have the development of people who are shameless, that reduces crucial barriers to bad behavior been very destructive in the united states and it's been it's going to likely be very destructive here are you seeing that more and more here in canada well i think i have i think so i mean i think that we've seen you know the whole controversy last year two years ago over the manitoba lab was partly like this Mm. Uh, i think we see it in a lot of different places and so this visit by this extremist Right now, the leader of the conservative political party says that he, you know, he was not in support of extremism, but he went to the pro the uh, convoy folks last year yeah. when they were being led by extremists, when they had various kinds of extremist uh, banners and death threats to Trudeau. And whether you like Trudeau or not, we should not be supporting people who utter death threats to the prime minister. Right? They can say, "Well, I was uh, the banner was behind me, but I didn't see it." I remember some conservatives yeah. were like, "Yes, hey, there was a swastika behind me, but I didn't see it." I, you know, and it's like you don't show up at events where that stuff is happening because if you do, then yes, people are going to conflate you're part of it. You're, you're endorsing yep, you're it. part of it. And so they're trying to get away with with this. Now, some will say, and I think rightly so. That Trudeau, in his stance on the electoral interference stuff, is is problematic in a similar kind of way, where he's denying that the go- efforts by the Chinese government to meddle in the election of 2021, he's trying to say, you know, it really wasn't that important because it didn't change the outcomes. And they haven't been transparent about this. And so no, they haven't. Trudeau, in his own way, has been breeding distrust of the political system because he hasn't been as forthright and transparent about this specific thing, that there had been warnings. Dick Fadden, I remember a few years ago at a Vimy Gala where he was awarded a, a Vimy Award and gave a much better speech than a certain retired general, where he warned about what the Chinese and the government was doing, what the Russian government was doing. And it was a real warning. And we've seen CSIS and other actors basically uh, pull the alarm about particularly the government of China interfering in Canadian politics. Trudeau has done some stuff there. I do know I did have some friends of mine who do elect- election st- political science. And so they were mm-hmm. involved in some of the stuff about how do we make sure our elections are not interfered in. But right. they could have been much more open about what was going on. And you know, in 2016, the Republican Party benefited from the Russian election interference. They wanted to bury the story. Yeah. And in 2021, it's the liberals who benefited from Chinese election interference, and they mostly try to bury the story. So I find it interesting how Justin Trudeau has said, you know, this is such, it's an issue. We've known about it. I've talked about it on the floor of the House. We know it's an issue. But then at the same time saying stuff had happened that it, it's an important issue, but things have been done to ensure that they didn't meddle. So the results are legitimate. It just seems like he's arguing both sides of of the same coin. Like you can't, it doesn't make sense to me. As someone who is not, who does not understand, you know, the intricacies of political science of elections, it just seems as I'm going through what's available and what's being said, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Like you can't explain it away. Just like, you know, the example that you just gave around 
you know, Russians meddling in the, the U.S. politics in, in 2016. You can't declare that it's an issue, have evidence that it's an issue, but then say, well, it actually didn't change the outcome. And so, I mean, I'm going to have to agree with, you know, the people that are, you know, putting their hands up, like Polyev saying, you know, you're only saying it's okay because it's benefited you. Well, I mean, I can't help but think that as much as I hate to agree with Polyev. <laughs> the thing is, when he says, when Trudeau says, well, we don't know who benefited from it. We don't know who they helped. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think we do. I, I, th I, th I think I think the government does, even if we don't have the best data for it. Yeah, I think they know. And the idea of, well, CSIS didn't tell the government. Mm, not so sure. And so this, the tendency is to cover this up with secret sauce. Well, we can't reveal what we know for this reason or that reason. Right. It's like, yeah, you can. you can. If you can't tell us all the specifics, you can provide greater transparency. Although I will say part of this is the conservatives' fault because I mentioned earlier the Manitoba lab stuff. Well, the controversy of the Manitoba lab led the conservative party to sort of blow up the arrangement that the various parties had put together to deal with classified information that to review intelligence stuff, there was a committee that would report first the prime minister, but then to the public. The mm -hmm. zero, I want to say is the acronym or NIZICOP, I forget which one's which, but we have review processes in place, I think it's NIZICOP actually, that are supposed to get more information than the parliamentarians are usually allowed to get to assess things and then to issue reports. And if the prime minister uh, tries to protect himself too much by covering up, you know, redacting the report, then the, the parliamentarians on the panel, you know, throw a flag and cry foul. And that, but that's not what was happening here. It was, it was actually done under uh, Aaron O'Toole before he left, that they really trashed this process. And this process exists precisely because Canada doesn't really have the infrastructure, that is parliamentary committees with security clearances, uh -huh. for there to be really adequate legislative oversight over the government. And as a result, we need to develop all these kind of sideways procedures to replace that. And Izzy Kapp was one of them. And then it got blown up, I think, mostly for partisan purposes. I don't think there was really anything yes. going on with Manitoba Lab in a big way. And so we're not in as good of condition now for the parliamentarians to be able to review what happened with the election because we've already had this process tainted. So I guess we have to dig out yet another Supreme Court justice, retired, to do a review because we can't trust anybody who's not a Supreme Court justice to review anything. And this is appalling that we can't- Let these folks retire. <laughs> Let them go skiing and golfing. And it, well, it shows a lack of trust in everybody else. Well, that parliament yeah. can't do it, that the government can't do it. And so we always have, and maybe that nobody has got the guts to call it like they see it. So we, we have to have a Supreme Court justice force us to make these decisions. I do understand that there's some opposition to having a review because uh, Jess Davis, who's a student at Carleton and expert on the, the financial side of, of intelligence, was, was tweeting today that she, the problem with the review is that will that cause people to have to wait to make decisions? Um, mm -hmm. so we have had proposed legislation. We've had discussions about what to do about this kind of stuff for quite some time. Why don't we just do this? And this is one of the things that does drive me crazy about this government is there's all kinds of legislation they could table. They should be able to get the votes for it between their party and the deal they have with the, the NDP. Just mm -hmm. legislate, pass some legislation, make some laws that change the ability for people to do various things. Uh, I, it drives me crazy when it comes to defense stuff. Well, this is one of the obstacles to reform. Well, in this situation, it wouldn't be to their benefit, right? Because, I mean, they're in power, we, I'm suspecting, partially, you know, because of the role this whole situation with, with China has played. So, I mean, politically speaking, it wouldn't be in their benefit to pass legislation. But it... 
at this point, it might be because while they might have won a seat or two here or there based on Chinese mm-hmm. help, the go- Chinese government help, it, this is going to become a real millstone around their necks when it comes to the election, whenever that happens. They have an incentive to get in front of this issue so that way it does not become a key reason why people vote against them. Mm-hmm. And as the centrist party of Canada, they have a greater incentive than parties on either the right or the left to try to rebuild trust right. in the government. And that's a long-term thing that they should be carrying out as opposed to the short-term electoral incentives. But the short-term electoral incentive is they need to get free of this or else people are going to vote against them based on this issue. That they're But are people going to have long enough memories for this, though? I mean, we just saw, we, we were just saying how Rob Ford got reelected. Yes, but the, the difference between Rob Ford, uh, Doug Ford, and D- Justin Trudeau is that Justin Trudeau does face some serious opposition in two years. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, we've both said uh, disparaging things about Pelyev, but he's a real threat in a way that, yeah. can we even remember the names of the NDP and, and liberal uh, Ontario leaders that ran the, in a, the election last spring? We both live in Ontario. Right. We both voted probably <laughs> for, for them, but... Damn, if I remember them. Whereas Trudeau has a real threat. You know, he's yeah. he's been in government now for what? It'll be 10 years by the time we have the next election. That means he'll be fairly, what's the right word for this? Overly ripe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he's, you know, people who have been in office for 10 years, they tend to stink and people will want to get rid of them just because they've been around too long and they want to change yeah. the election. And so mm-hmm. he's fa- he's going to face a tough time in two years regardless. And if this is hanging over his head that he somehow uh, is winning I'll elections let Ill- illegitimately, let it happen. That's going to be a reason for people in, in the federal elections, for NDP people to, or people who might vote for the liberals vote for the NDP instead, for people yeah. who might vote for the liberals vote for the conservatives instead, just because they want to change. They, they're, they're tired of this. So I do think there's some electoral incentives. But yes, it is also the case that they don't want to investigate too closely because they don't want to, they want to show to the world that maybe they they gained you know one, two, three, or four seats based on this kind of stuff. It's certainly the case that the Chinese government's not going to stop doing this. It's not like they're paying a heavy price for this. So we have to figure out the ways in which this behavior is, uh, how they interfere and try to cut that off. Here in Canada, we can't really go to Beijing and tell them to stop doing this. They, the Chinese government is pretty determined to mess with us one way or another. Yeah. Well, us and evidently many other countries. Yes. Yes. Although they really have had a real fun time playing with us between the two Michaels and oh yes, yeah. other stuff. So. Of course, the good news is sending the world a signal that the Chinese government is aggressive and obnoxious because they're picking on the Canadians, not, you know, that we're, we tend not to be seen as, as so worthy. Very threatening. Picked, yeah, very threatening. <laughs> we're not the ones who are usually seen as being the ones who we should be picked on, which leads to our third story that uh, we chose to talk about, which is one of the things that came out of the balloon mess last week is there was a story saying that the Chinese are trying to surveil our Arctic in a variety of ways, and we've stopped them. Are you convinced that we've done a good job of stopping Canadian surveillance on the Arctic? Was was a news coverage of this? So convincing. This has been really interesting. This news article is is something that I've found myself talking about around various dinner tables. Typically, things like Chinese meddling in elections is not usually a topic of conversation at various dinner tables that I'm at, but this balloon situation has been. So it's been interesting to get people's take on that. One of the comments actually my brother-in-law made the other day was, oh, like, has this not been happening for years? Has this not been happening for years? Have these surveillance balloons not been happening for years? Why is it? And neither one of us know. So I'm just, I guess, to start things off, just to, you know, just to inform me, like, is this unusual to have surveillance balloons? Like, don't all countries spy on one another? Well, the unusual part about this is the balloon part, not the surveillance part. I mean, the Chinese ah. have satellites. We have satellites. 
Right. The Indians have satellites, the Japanese have satellites, the Russians have satellites, the Americans have satellites, a lot of countries have satellites. But it's the balloon piece. The balloon piece. That's visible. That is visible with a naked eye-ish. Yes. I think what we've been more concerned in the Arctic is not balloons, but ships. That the Chinese government has sent ships to the Arctic under the auspices of scientific discovery, but they've actually been doing something else. But I'm not sure what there is to be gained. I'm I'm not an expert in the Arctic, but I'm not sure we're that active in the Arctic that there's stuff for them to supply upon. If nothing's happening, mm-hmm. then what is a surveillance ship? What is a spy ship going to see besides not much happening? I do think that this, you know, spying is normal international relations behavior. Okay. And the Chinese government is going to do more of it as it becomes more powerful. When they had less resources, they did less of it. They have more resources mm-hmm. and more interests. They have more of it. When you become a global power, you looking at things all over the place. So I'm not surprised. I just, I'm not as worried about Chinese surveillance in the Arctic or of Russian surveillance in the Arctic. I just still think both countries have minimal means by which to cause trouble in the Arctic. It's just so far away that they can't really sustain themselves up there. We, we can barely sustain our activities up there and we are closer. So I'm not that worried about it, but I do think it is the job of our military to try to thwart violations of our sovereignty. And so if the Chinese are actually in our waters, then we should be pushing them out of our waters. Absolutely. Um, yep. And given the aggressive behavior the Chinese Navy has in waters that it claims, that is- In, in and around Taiwan, are you- In and around Taiwan, exactly. Yeah. Then we, we should be able to do the same to them. They may have an expansive notion of what waters are theirs, but as an American living in Canada, I know that Canada has an expansive notion of what it considers its waters. On, the, on this, Chinese should look at what Canada does to push the Chinese ships out of Canadian waters as being, you know, playing by the same set of rules. Now, I hadn't heard about that. That's not something that I think is made the newspapers, I don't think, around Chinese and Russian ships being in Canadian waters, or am I, have I been living under a rock? No, they it's... haven't been in our waters, at least as far as we can tell. But oh, okay. Been, been, but hovering been, around? Hovering around. I, I, The story that we both read wasn't very specific. No. So I'm not exactly clear on how close they're getting. But I, I it is driven by the balloon stuff. And it's also driven by the discussion of the past few years of modernizing NORAD, that we are concerned not only with Russian, you know, the traditional threat of Russian yeah. missiles and bombers heading over our heads towards the Americans, but we're also concerned about monitoring Chinese yeah, ships Chinese. and planes in, in mm-hmm. the Arctic. So this would give us greater visibility, whether, you know, I'm a skeptic about whether we should design our, our warning systems t- to identify balloons. Because balloons don't really present the same kind of threats as missiles and planes do. Yes, uh, but it's been interesting how the balloon yeah. surveillance has garnered so much general attention the past couple of weeks. Yeah, and it's bringing yeah. this discussion to, like I said, to dinner tables that I usually that don't usually talk about this sort of thing. Yeah, it's a, well, it's novel, right? So people are more, yeah. you know, I mean, are we as scared now as we were when Sputnik was launched? Probably not. So it's not that radical, but it is something new-ish. And mm-hmm. it gives all sides a chance to sort of criticize all the sides, right? So in Canada, there's a lot of criticism. The government had had left us ill-prepared to deal with this. Like, well, we're ill-prepared to deal with all kinds of things. But given that this is not really a threat, I'd rather be ill-prepared to deal with a balloon traveling across our country as compared to <laughs> a pandemic, 
right? That we can't handle everything all the time. And so we've got to design a military, design a, a defense system, design a police force and all the rest to deal with the likely threats. Yes. So for instance, when it comes back to policing, white supremacist violence, right? Far right violence is much more likely than left-wing violence. So we should spend more of our prepare assets for that. to prepare for that. Exactly. And so balloons are the same thing. Should we spend a lot of resources to be able to shoot down balloons? No, because it's not really that much of a threat. They're hard to shoot down because they, they don't have the same kind of radar or temperature profile that goes along with our missile. They are much, much higher than the average plane. So they're harder to deal with, but it's not really worth the investment of trying to hit a $500 balloon or a $1,000 balloon or a $100,000 balloon with a $5 million missile, right? So it's a matter of risk mitigation, managing risks, not avoiding risks, but figuring out right. what risks you can accept and which risks you can't. The balloon thing reminds me of what happened during World War II, which is during World War II, the Japanese government had very limited means to attack North America. So one of the things they did, I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, is that they developed incendiary balloons. And if you go to Japan and go to one of the museums, you can see them. Uh, what these things look, used to look like. And they did hit uh, British Columbia and they did hit Northwest United States and they were aiming to set off forest fires. Well, is that a threat to us now or is climate change a threat to us now? Because that's the one thing that's causing more forest mm -hmm. fires. Yeah. Right? Again, yeah. it's about what is causing the more, the greater risks and what can we try to deal do with it? So I'm not sweating balloons, but I am sweating climate change. Well, I think this is sort of like the theme of today's discussion, talking about mitigating risk and looking at what are actual threats compared to what are potential minor threats, right? I mean, if we look back at some, like the two other stories that we talked about, that seems to be uh, the theme of the day. Yes. Well, it's nice that we found a theme for today. Speaking of themes of the day, you uh, interviewed Ashley Williams for our interview segment and that we're going to have yes. on right after this segment. What did you guys talk yeah. about? So I had the pleasure of interviewing a, a colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Ashley Williams, um, who's an occupational therapist like myself, who's done some fantastic work looking at how the transition process for our military members, what it looks like for them when they're trying to access healthcare from when they're you know, in serving in the military into the civilian system. So we had a lovely conversation about uh, some of the work that she's done and some really interesting findings, which um, is, you know, a little bit different than some of the discussions that we host here on um, Battle Rhythms. But I think it's, you know, just as important for, you know, our listeners to know about, you know, those experiences as they, you know, develop uh, policies and uh, do the work that they do. So stay tuned. Um, Excellent. That's coming up next. Well, thanks for uh, joining us this week, Lena. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you. And yeah, same here. Maybe one of these times when you hit Ottawa, we can uh, actually see each other in person. Yes. Again, we have Ashley Williams come on next. Uh, thanks, Lena, and we'll talk to you soon. Have a good day. Hello, this is Lena Tamsito. I am a research associate and assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University. And I'm also a research scientist with the Family Matters Research Group and one of the co-hosts of the Battle Rhythms podcast, a part of the CDSN podcast network. Today, I'm here with Dr. Ashley Williams, postdoctoral research fellow in the Trauma and Recovery Research Unit at McMaster University. And full disclosure, Ashley and I work together many times over the years as our research program does seem to occupy a similar space. However, I am very grateful for this unique opportunity to have a conversation with Ashley about the work that she's been doing. So welcome to Battle Rhythms Podcast, Ashley. 
Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so um, I'm an occupational therapist by background. Got into the research world around 2013, working with Dr. Heidi Cram at Queen's University. Then went back for my PhD in 2017 and started working with Dr. Margaret McKinnon at McMaster about a year ago, I guess. And much of my research has been focused on, at least recently, around military to civilian transition and access to health services. But I've also done a fair amount of work with military connected families. And uh, really, this is an area that I'm really, really passionate about and feel very privileged to be able to work on. So can you share a little bit more about how you came about doing this work? Was it through your clinical practice that you landed in this area? Was there another pathway? Yeah, so there was kind of of a convergence of multiple pathways, really. So certainly the interest in health came from my clinical background. I also have a few family members who are and have previously served in the military, most particularly my, my brother. And so I finished my clinical program in 2014, and then my brother left the regular forces in, I think it was 2015. And uh, it just kind of got me thinking about military to civilian transition and what that that's going to look like for him. And so I think that's kind of where my my initial interest in the in the transition came about. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's kind of, you know, multiple pathways through personal connections and, uh, and also my connection to uh, Dr. Cram, doing some work with her, our military families, it all kind of came together. And my work, my clinical work was in primary care. So I, I worked on a, a couple of family health teams here in Ontario. And so the, so I was particularly interested in the primary care access piece, because that's such an important, especially in Canada, avenue to be able to access healthcare services. Uh, you know, it's really important to have that connection to primary care. So yeah, it's kind of a convergence of multiple pathways. Before we get further into your actual research, I realized that a lot of people who may not have needed to access occupational therapy really have no understanding of what, what the profession is. And being an OT myself, I find that's always been a bit of a struggle. So could you share with our listeners a little bit about what your experience as an OT is and how that has informed the work that you do in transition? Yeah, for sure. So occupational therapy is really all about looking at what people need and want to do in their everyday lives and areas that they may struggle with. So, you know, the three areas of occupation that tend to come up are self-care. So that could be things like bathing, eating, that sort of thing. Productivity, which could be your work or taking care of other people in your life, taking care of your home, that sort of thing. And leisure, uh, which, you know, runs the gamut depending on <laughs> depending mm-hmm. on what you're interested in. So we look at where, where folks might struggle with that potentially related to health issues that they have and how can we facilitate better functioning in those areas. And so my, my clinical background pretty much exclusively in primary care, working as part of primary care teams. You know, a lot of what I did focused on older adults, looking at things like fall prevention, uh, maintaining independence, folks get older. Uh And I did have a couple of experiences working with veterans throughout my clinical experience. And I think 
I, I sometimes wonder if one misconception when it comes to working with veterans, especially as, as someone who may not have a connection to the military, there's sometimes a, a perception that veterans have access to a very large array of services through Veterans Affairs. And that can be true for some people, but yeah. it's I, I don't think it's always true. So I think that's something to kind of keep in mind as a healthcare provider. But yeah, that's kind of a little bit about my background and and where where my clinical practice is situated. I think a lot of the times as healthcare providers who work in this space were really consistently trying to, you know, educate Canadians, like civilian Canadians as to, you know, what the realities of being a veteran is like in Canada. I think a lot of our knowledge of what veterans, like who veterans are, is is a big one and also what's available to veterans i think you know we get a lot of information from these in television that is you know that's based out of the u.s where they have actual veterans hospitals where people yeah. can go and that's just that's simply not the case so for because that's not the case in canada what in your experience have been some of the challenges for veterans that need healthcare services in canada yeah so i th- i think the the transition is where this really comes into play so i think Veterans, when when you're in service, you have access to the Canadian Forces Health Services, and particularly around primary care. You know, as a CAF member, you're always attached to a primary care provider. You know, just based on my experience speaking with veterans, you know, and this is true in the civilian system as well. You know, you're not always necessarily happy with your primary care provider, but in the military, you always have access to one. Whereas that's just not the case in the civilian world. And I think that when military members leave service, you know, they're not always going to have a seamless transition as far as access to healthcare services goes. So in my research, particularly around my doctoral work, you know, I spoke to a lot of folks who had a gap in access to primary care after leaving service. And for people who are healthy when they leave and, and really don't have a lot of health issues, that's maybe mm-hmm. not such a big deal. But if you leave service and you have health issues that need regular follow-up, it can be a real challenge, you know, just kind of learning the new system and how exactly you find a healthcare provider. And if you can't get attached to a primary care provider right away, then you're kind of stuck going to walk-in clinics or emergency services. And that can be you know, especially if you've got multiple problems and the only, you know, the provider will only take one issue at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can get really onerous to try and get health services. And I think the other piece to this is when you're coming from a system where you're used to having access consistently, that can be really jarring, especially if you've been in service, you know, since you were, since you were young and been in for a long time and not really had a lot of exposure to what the civilian system looks like. I think it can be really jarring for folks. And I think the other piece too, is that, you know, military to civilian transition, it's a complex administrative process. And it's also very complex on a personal level for each veteran. And what I do think you mean by health, that? Well, administratively, you know, there's a lot of things to think about as far as, you know, pensions, you know, the various the various administrative steps that you have to go through to leave service. But then of on a more personal level, you know, there's a lot of work that's been done looking at things like identity loss. You know, you're kind of you're you're leaving an institution that you've been 
a part of for for a long time and you know what we've heard from veterans is missing the camaraderie and just sort of you know going into a new culture it can be a bit of a culture shock been some work done on that particularly I'm, I'm thinking particularly in the UK but lots of lots of work been done on just kind of that identity shift and you know some people manage that really well and and for other people mm-hmm. it's a struggle so I think you know what I mean is that there's a lot to th- a lot to think about and a lot to yeah. process and I think healthcare access gets lost in all of that or, or it can get lost in all of that and um, what historically from your understanding what kind of role does Veterans Affairs Canada play in the healthcare access piece well, I think that can probably be a source of confusion as well for particularly for civilian providers. So Veterans Affairs Canada provides services only to people who are eligible for it. And I think as far as being a client of Veterans Affairs, only about 18 or 19 percent of veterans are actually clients of, of Veterans Affairs and get services through them. So there's kind of a misconception that, you know, everybody has access to a wide range of services through Veterans Affairs. But the thing is, is that Veterans Affairs does not provide primary care. And, you know, based on the work that I've done, and again, this this area is, is very new, but there certainly is a perception among veterans that there's not a lot of support available to help get access to primary care, at least not formal support. I've heard a lot about, you know, veterans who do have access to Veterans Affairs services, you know, being referred to various primary care providers through providers they have at Veterans Affairs, but it's more, mm-hmm. that's more of an informal, you know, their provider just happened to know someone who was taking patients kind of thing. So I think that's a common misperception. You know, Veterans Affairs does not provide primary care. And as far as I'm aware, there's no formal services that help you access a family doctor. And in some cases, it can actually be fairly complicated (laughs) uh, with the relationship with Veterans Affairs because if you have medical paperwork that you need filled out for Mm -hmm. a claim, you know, Veterans Affairs requires that you have that filled out by a physician. And if you don't have a regular family doctor who has an awareness of your history, that can be really difficult to do. So, so it's kind of complex. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of, it's uh, yeah. sort of like roadblocks that are sort of built within roadblocks. Yeah, yeah, that's actually time. a good way to put it. Yeah, and I, and I mean, you know, a lot of people that I've spoken to have had really positive experiences with Veterans Affairs. So I don't want to say it's always negative, to, but I think there's definitely some of those administrative processes around, you know, claims related to injuries or illnesses that have come up from service. You know, they can really c- create some barriers for people, I think. Wearing your clinician hat for another, you know, couple of minutes, you know, what can an OT do to help? Mm with us? Well, I think for, for OTs, the first step, or, or if you're not necessarily aware of whether you have patients on your, on your client or uh, veterans on your client load is becoming mm-hmm. aware of that. So screening is pretty fundamental. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So screening and, you know, depending on what your practice area is, like, obviously, if you contract to Veterans Affairs, you're going to know that the people you're getting are veterans. But, you know, thinking specifically in primary care, you know, if you're an OT working on a team or even in a hospital or, you know, whatever your setting is, 
screening new new patients for past military service is kind of the the first step really because you can if you don't know they're there you can't help them right right so i think that's that's the first thing and i think the other thing is especially even if you're working with veterans affairs as a contractor recognizing that access to primary care can be problematic and you know asking about that and supporting the veteran in accessing primary care whether that's you know advocating with local primary care clinics in your area you know i've i've certainly heard about ot's writing recommendation letters to kind of help people get into primary care practices that may mm-hmm. be full you know kind of making the case for why this person needs access. So I think that's kind of the first thing. And I think the other thing is working on building that sort of military and veteran cultural competence. So learning a little bit about the military and how it works, you know, you don't have to be an expert, but having some sense of, you know, how the ranks work, how the various service elements work. And I think also what I've heard a lot from veterans is just showing some curiosity and care around that person's military past without necessarily diving too deep into specifics, I guess. Right. Yeah. So I think those are kind of kind of the general pieces that not just OTs, but any healthcare provider can do. And I think OTs are particularly well suited for this work because I think we, you know, those issues around identity shifts and the cultural shifts, I think are really OTs bread and butter (laughs) and looking at, you know, uh, or how a veteran can sort of make those uh, cultural transitions and and looking at, you know, what are the next steps now that you've left the military? I think those are things that OTs are really well suited for. They're really important areas that require attention during transition. And it's interesting that it isn't typically on the radar of other healthcare providers. Yeah, especially if you've got, you know, civilian healthcare providers who really have no connection to the military and therefore are not just going to just don't think about this, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that is very important to think about and I I think in part the reason why it's not top of mind is is again because we're not necessarily screening for past military service as a matter right. of course when you get a yeah. new patient. Yeah. So in addition to the amazing work that you're doing around, you know, healthcare provision during military to civilian transition, I know that you're doing some other interesting work in the trauma and recovery research unit. Do you mind sharing some of that with us? Yeah, for sure. So there's two projects in particular that I'm focused on. One is funded through the Chronic Pain Center of Excellence for Canadian Veterans. And we're looking at what do civilian healthcare providers need to know to provide effective care for veterans with chronic pain. And this is an interesting project because it actually came about as a result of consultations with veterans. And this is something that veterans were identifying as an issue. So we've been looking into that and looking at uh, the perspective of veterans themselves and also healthcare providers who work with veterans and also looking at the literature around what do we already know about this. Mm-hmm. And, and our goal is to develop some, some guidelines around how to effectively work with veterans with chronic pain. And I, and I think it'll translate not just to veterans with chronic pain, but any veteran. 
And so developing some clinical guidelines around that to educate civilian healthcare providers across Canada. So we're really excited about that. And that's such a natural extension from very much so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really, really happy to be working on that project because it's, it's definitely an extension of my doctoral work, a very, very natural extension. And I think the other interesting thing is my, my doctoral work wasn't necessarily focused on a specific health issue and chronic pain is, you know, one of the most common health issues that come up for veterans when they leave service. So it, it certainly was a sensible next step to focus on the mo- one of the most common health issues that come up that healthcare providers are, are likely going to be dealing with, even if it's not necessarily the primary reason the veteran is seeing that provider, it's likely that that's going to come up. We're so. hearing a chronic pain is such a a broad condition that has so many sources. We know that, you know, from strictly physical injuries can result in chronic pain, but we're finding more and more that um, mental health injuries trauma exposure, um, that sort of thing will contribute to experiences of chronic pain. So, Oh, absolutely. Um, that's yeah. really exciting work that, uh, that you're, you're leading Thank anything you. else within the uh, trauma and recovery research unit that you're doing. Yeah. So the other project I'm working on is looking at the effectiveness of equine assisted learning for public safety personnel who have suspected PTSD. So that one, that one's a very interesting project and it's a new population for me. So I'm really interested to learn more about public safety personnel. There's certainly a lot of overlap between in terms of uh, health issues between veterans and and public safety personnel. Could you briefly public safety personnel? personnel? Because that's a term that's unique to us in Canada. Yes, absolutely. So public safety personnel refers to essentially the personnel who are responsible for maintaining safety and security among the Canadian population. So, and, and some examples would be police officers, paramedics, emergency dispatchers, correctional workers, firefighters. And I think more recently, especially in light, in light of the pandemic, nurses have been included in there as well and other healthcare providers. So yeah, that's kind of a, in a nutshell, <laughs> explanation of what I mean by public safety personnel. And so of course, you know, in that line of work, you are going to have an increased risk of exposure to trauma. And so that's uh, that's sort of where this work with the equine-assisted learning is coming from. So we're looking at whether equine-assisted learning is effective in reducing PTSD symptom severity among that population in particular. So um, we're just getting started with that project. We're really excited to see where that leads. And as I said, it's a, it's a new research population for me. So really interested to learn more about that and see if we can provide an evidence base for an additional therapy that we can use to help public safety personnel who are dealing with PTSD. Do you know if anything like this has been done before, like this, this type of research? Not to our knowledge with this, with this population, it's, there's certainly Mm -hmm. been some work done with veterans, not just necessarily around equine assisted therapies, but, you know, also other kind of 
animal related therapies like service dogs for example mm -hmm. but to to our knowledge i don't i don't know of any of any research that's been done specifically with equine assisted learning so there's there's a lot of different types of equine assisted therapies and equine assisted learning is essentially the the idea behind it is that you you go into each session and there's a particular learning goal for that session and all of the interactions with the horses are unmounted so there's no riding okay. and the idea is that horses are fairly sensitive to to things like body language and, and sort of how you're presenting yourself and so that helps to facilitate kind of some self-awareness I guess around how you are presenting yourself and sort of a focus on being in the moment so that you can accomplish the learning goal for that day. As I said, this is a new area for me, so I'm still I'm still learning, but yeah, that's sort of the the idea behind equine assisted learning. And as I said, there's other types of equine assisted therapies and e, uh, equine assisted learning is one of them and that's the one that we're kind of looking at to see whether that makes a difference for folks. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how uh, your studies evolve. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the last question before we wrap things up is why do you think your research is important for our listeners to know about? You know, most of the, the listeners of our podcast work predominantly in the area of national and international defense and security, which is, you know, a, a bit adjacent to the work that you and I typically reside in. So wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah, so I think I think that the issue of military to civilian transition is a really important one. And I think that you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's so much to think about and so much to do to help military members transition to the civilian world. And I think that healthcare piece can get lost. And that's something that I heard from veterans throughout my throughout my doctoral work is that, you know, it's not necessarily something you have to think a lot about while you're in service. And so it kind of gets, you know, pushed to the wayside or not thought about at all. I think the reason this work is important is because it brings it brings that piece of the transition to the fore. And I think that if you can improve access to health services and make that piece of the transition more seamless, I do wonder if some of the other issues um, that come up, you know, the peri-release period, which is essentially the, the time frame surrounding the release date can be really a really challenging period from a mental health perspective and i wonder if improving access to health services and making that piece more seamless will help to you know maybe soften that transition a little bit for folks so i think you know if, you know from a national security perspective i think making sure that military members have as seamless a transition to civilian life as possible is a really important part of um, of maintaining national security and I think retention too. You know, if people know they're going to be taken care of yeah. when it's time for their service to end. They may be more likely to to want to join. So you know, that's you know speculation on my part, but <laughs> I think that's a, that's a really important piece. You know, I, I think that transition out of service should get as much attention as transition into service. So I mean, I think as Canadians, it's our responsibility Absolutely. to ensure that yeah. people, you know, who've put so much of themselves and their families have put so much of themselves into serving our country that we're there to support them. Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree well, more. Well, thanks again, Dr. Ashley Williams, for this time. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, and I'll Dr. I'll talk to you Tansy. again soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.